welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Matthew chapter 7, and here at Ramsey Heights we have a... um, uh, I don't know if you call it a slogan, maybe a mantra. I prefer to think of it as a mission statement where we focus on what we are as a church and why we exist. And it goes something like this. You hear me say it almost every week, is that we exist to be and make disciples who adore God, bridge gaps, and cultivate the kingdom. When we come together as a church, that is what our purpose is. We are here to adore God, bridge gaps, cultivate the kingdom. I want to be a disciple who does that. I want to encourage you to be a disciple who does that and hopefully collectively we will find other people in the community in the world bring them into our family and create in them disciples who do that but there's just one question with what that means and the question is what what does it mean to be a disciple because a disciple, the word disciple, like many other words that we talk about in here, it becomes a churchy word. Like, like we don't use the word disciple very often at work. We, we don't talk about disciples with our family unless we're talking about it in a church concept. So because it's a churchy word, we only use it here. And you kind of pick up the meaning of being a disciple. It means something to the fact of being like, like a follower of God, maybe a Christian disciple. Those all kind of go together. But because it's not a common cultural term in our society like it was when the Bible was written, or at least the New Testament was written, the, the meaning of it gets somewhat diluted. So I wanted to start this morning by giving us a little bit of context of what the the word disciple meant when it was written in the Bible. Now what you've got to understand is in Israel they had this educational system, much like we have an educational system. However, their educational system did not focus on math. They were very lucky. It didn't focus on history. They were very unlucky. It didn't focus on science. It focused on getting to know more about God. And so an individual, a child, when they became five, they would begin school. And at five they would begin focusing on studying the Torah and memorizing parts of the Torah. Now, if you're not familiar with the Torah, that is the Jewish word for the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And so from the ages of five to 10, kids would study and memorize vast parts of the Torah of those five books. At age 10, if they were somewhat of a good student, they could continue their education where they would begin to uh, focus on interpretation. They would begin to study the prophets and understand what the prophets meant. A little bit more advanced study. By the time an individual became 20, they would be expected to begin learning a trade, to begin um, building a family, getting married. And if they continued their study through their 20s, by age 30, you could be considered a teacher. You had the ability at age 30 to teach other people. And when you became that age, if you continued teaching, you had studied all the way up until you were 30, you would be given this title of rabbi, which simply means teacher. Now, what rabbis would do is they would begin to gather personal students to follow them. And these students would learn under them for years and years and years, and they would imitate their their rabbi. A rabbi, when he saw a student he felt like was good to follow him, was worthy of that, he would walk up to the student and he would extend the invitation saying, follow me. And that student was, that was considered a great honor, so that student would decide to follow. And and these students became known as Talmud. This is the word that we now translate to disciples. 
So, so a disciple was somebody who sat under the teaching of a rabbi. They began to understand the teaching and how to apply it to life, but they were also a follower of that rabbi. Now, when I hear the word follower, I think of like a bunch of ducks walking in a row. Like you're going that way and I'm following you. But for a disciple in this time period to, to be a follower of a rabbi, well, it was not simply to just follow them around and see where they went. It meant that I will dedicate my life to becoming like my rabbi. I will dedicate my life to learning their teachings, to imitating them, and to being like them. So when we ask the question, what is a disciple? I'm going to give you three things of what a disciple is. Your first take-home truth this morning is, is a disciple dedicates their life to the teachings and the worldview of their rabbi. That's what it meant to be a disciple. So when we use this word today to describe ourselves, to describe what we're doing here, we're not simply saying Christians in the general sense. There is a very pointed uh, purpose to what it means to be a disciple. We dedicate our life to the teachings of Jesus Christ and following him. Now what the rabbi would do is he would watch his pupils over time and he would watch their growth and he was constantly evaluating these pupils. He was seeing what they knew, what they didn't know, how they were acting, were they applying these teachings to their lives. And when he felt they were ready, he would send these disciples out and he would commission them to make more disciples. So the concept of this was, is if you are like me, and I send you out to make more people like you, those people will then be like me. And in this way, a rabbi would expand his teachings, his influence, his understanding of the Bible across Israel. So the second thing that we see here, next take home truth, is a disciple's ultimate goal is to make more disciples. Now, the reason I bring all of that up this morning is because we see that in the life of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you see Jesus going through these individual phases. For example, the only thing that we know about Jesus between the time that he was three and the time that he was 12, it says that he grew in wisdom. That's wording that speaks to the fact that he was in the educational system of Israel like anybody else, learning the Bible and memorizing it. We see at age 12, which was when he would be in that advanced study, that when Jesus goes missing, where do they find him? They find him at the temple questioning the priest and learning and discussing the Torah with the priest. We also know that Jesus began his ministry at about age 30 and people called him rabbi. You see in the Gospels that that is when Jesus started gathering his disciples. And we see in a few instances, most specifically John, James, Peter, Andrew, and Matthew, where Jesus is recorded as giving them that calling to be his disciples, where he walks up to them and says, follow me. That wasn't just a Jesus saying, that was common for a rabbi to call disciples in that way. We see then that Jesus teaches them, trains them as they become disciples, they become like him. At one point, he even gives them the ability to heal like him him and sends them out to go preach the gospel and to heal people. And then in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, you see that he commissions those disciples to go make more disciples. And so when we gather here as a church, we are a part of a lineage of disciple making. The original disciples went out and made disciples, and those disciples went out and made those disciples, and those disciples went out and made more disciples, and those disciples went out and made disciples, up until the point where somebody who was a disciple of Jesus Christ came to you and shared with you the gospel and and made you a disciple. We are a lineage of disciples leading all the way back to Jesus Christ. So so when we talk about being a disciple, take home truth number three, 
is Christians are disciples of Jesus who follow him and make more disciples. We, we are not simply just in the generic term Christians. We are disciples of Jesus who dedicate our lives to following him, dedicate our lives to making more disciples. So my question is, with all of this knowledge of what it means to actually be a disciple, not to be a church member, not to be a Christian in the general sense, but to be a devout follower of Jesus Christ, what does that look like practically in my day-to-day life? And in this sermon series that we're starting today, we're going to spend the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at habits of what a disciple should be doing. Five habits that, that will grow us as disciples if we take seriously our calling to follow Jesus. So today we want to start with habit number one. Next take home truth. Habit number one of a disciple is that a disciple must study his teachings. If you've got your Bible open, this is Matthew 7. Read with me, please. Starting in verse 24. Jesus speaking here, he says, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock." And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does, not them, and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat up on the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So this is Jesus speaking and teaching and one of his favorite ways to speak. We call this a parable. In modern terms, you might be familiar with the word metaphor. What Jesus does is he takes an understandable life circumstance that you and I might understand from our world, and he teaches a spiritual discipline or a spiritual truth based upon that. And so in this particular instance, he focuses on two different people, and these two different people have different character traits. He says one of these people is a wise man. That simply means that they make, they make good decisions. They base their life on the right things. They have good, solid judgment. That's a character trait of a person to be wise. But he says there is another person who also has the character trait of being a fool, meaning that they lack good judgment and good decision-making processes. And they're similar in every way. In the real world, both of these men hear the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the parable, they're very similar as well. They're both looking for a place to build their house. They spend time dealing with the location of their house, choosing a location for their house, and then both men experience a storm. The only difference between the wise man and the foolish man is their response to one thing, is their response to the teachings of Jesus. The wise man takes the teachings of Jesus, receives them, and begins to apply them to his life. Yet the foolish man who heard the teachings of Jesus as well takes the the teachings of Jesus and sets them aside. And Jesus compares this to building a house. He says, a person who takes my teachings and applies them to a life is like a person who builds the house on a solid foundation of a rock. Now, if you're not familiar with building houses, I'm not a great carpenter or anything like that, but I, I know this. I know that you don't buy a house with foundation problems. Why is that? Because everything else about the house rests upon that foundation. 
If the foundation is broken, if it's not sturdy, the, the house will begin to fall apart. If the ground under the foundation is shifting, the house will begin to mess up. If the house foundation is not built squarely, the entire structure of the house will be off, scare, off square. If it is compromised, it will mess up everything. So Jesus compares a man who takes his teachings to a person who builds a house on a solid foundation. That is a wise and smart choice for the future of the house. So the next take-home truth is this, is the teachings of Jesus should be the foundation we build our life on. I'm going to say that again. I want that to sink in. The teachings of Jesus should be the foundation that we build our life on. What I mean by that is, as followers of Christ, as disciples, we should have a biblical worldview, which simply means that we take this book, the Bible, and it guides and governs our life. And the reason we do that is answered in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. See, the reason our Bibles are so important is that this is the God-breathed blueprint to life. That, that's why we spend time studying this. That's why we come in here, and I don't get up here and talk about what I think we should do this week. That's why we spend time in the Word and, and learning the Word, because God gave this to us from Him to teach us how to leave. And these are the teachings that Jesus is referencing in His parable of the two builders. Now, I know for some people get tied up in this, and if you spend especially a lot of time studying the Scripture, you'll realize that this book is written by many different men. You can open your book and be like, okay, well, this was written by Paul, this was written by Matthew, this was written by John. You can go to the Old Testament, these parts were written by Moses, this part was written by the, this prophet Isaiah. And so people get tied up into, well, isn't it just a bunch of writings of men? Well, when the Bible says that it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, what that means is God wrote this book through men. It's like this, um, I don't know, does anybody else live at a house where they have an Amazon addiction? Me? Me and the UPS drivers are best friends. I'm sorry. We're like, they come to our house all the time. And here's what happens is I get on Amazon and we find something that we need and we order it. But Amazon themselves does not hand it to me. There's an intermediary that brings that and delivers it to our house. Usually UPS, sometimes FedEx. Well, the word of God is written the same way. This is sent to us from God, but it is sent to us through an intermediary of the men who wrote this and recorded it for us. Now, if that's true, what that tells me is we've got something very, very special. I, I, love, I love being a Christian because God created the heavens and the earth. He created all the animals. He made these beautiful mountains and these oceans. And he took time to take time and sit down and write a letter to me. He took time to sit down and write a letter to you explaining how he wants us to live, how to find him, how to understand the way the world that was meant. Like that should be exciting to us. The creator of the world communicates with me and you. And so if we're excited about that, then we should take this Bible and take it seriously and use it as a guide for our lives when we make decisions. It should be something that determines our morals. And when we're faced with a dilemma, we should seek answers within the scripture. That means when I, when I look at marriage and I say, what does marriage really mean? I go to my Bible and I ask those questions of the Bible. 
When I'm raising kids and I'm saying, how do I raise kids? How should I raise kids in this world? I get my answers from the Bible. When I'm in conflict with someone and I need to know how to handle conflict, I get the answers from the Bible. When I look at my finances and wonder how I should handle them, I get my answers from the Bible. And when I figure out where and to whom I want to trust my eternity, I get my answers from the Bible because God sent us this message. That's what a wise man does. But Jesus also gives an alternative. He calls this man foolish, someone who hears the words of God, who hears the instructions and does not apply them. So so God tells us that there are people in the world that will hear the teachings of Jesus, they'll begin to reason with them and argue with them, and ultimately they will reject them. That's not for me. That's probably a good thing, but I'm just not going to live my life that way. And Jesus calls that a foolish move. So why would somebody be foolish? I think back to that analogy of the two men building the houses. One of them picks a rock to build on. And in my mind, I see a mountain and a house built on top of a mountain because that's where I'd want to live. And I see a man looking for somewhere to build his house and he finds a nice sandy area. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Sand is annoying. It gets in everything. It's everywhere. Why would you build a house on sand? It hit me. In our context, this might not have been what Jesus meant, but think of it this way. A man is looking for a place to build a house and he finds a beautiful beach on the Gulf of Mexico. What a place to live. I want to walk out my back deck every day. I want the waves to come up and slap my back deck and I want to fall asleep to that every night. So he builds a house on the beach. See, his focus is not on where is a good place to build a house. His focus is on what can be attractive to me, what what is an attraction to me that might draw me away from sound judgment. And this is a lot of times what happens with people when they hear the teachings of Jesus, yet they uh, reject them. It's not so much that they disagree with the teachings of Jesus, it's just simply that the teachings of Jesus will often go completely against my own desires. I would rather be drawn to something else. There's something else that is attractive to me that I don't want to give away. And so I build my house on a foundation of something else. Some people build their houses on a foundation of emotion. What, what makes me feel good in this moment? Others build their houses on a, on a foundation of money. What does it take to make me the richest person? We could say comfort, popularity, success, relationships. The list goes on and on and on of things that could be the foundation of our life. And I just want to say to us, to me even, as I sit here and I apply this to our life, you have a choice in how you are going to build the foundation of your life. You can build your foundation of your life on the Word of God. You can build it on any of these other things and a thousand other things that I couldn't even begin to explain. But what Jesus is saying in this parable is be careful because if you build your life on the foundation of the wrong thing, it will spell disaster for you. And many people read this and go, well, my life's pretty good, Brian. I mean, sure, I chase success. Yes, my life revolves around money, but everything's going pretty good in my life. And that's to be expected. Because Jesus didn't say that your house would just fall down one day. He said, one day, a storm is going to come. And when the storm comes is, is when it matters what foundation you built upon. And so if we are like foolish people who build our lives on the foundation of something else, when the storm comes, our foundation will crumble, yet a wise man's foundation will stand. So our next take-home truth here is all other life foundations are only cheap imitations. And I can tell you from a worldly standpoint, the world will tell you there is only three things in life that will make you happy. If you get the correct cocktail of these three things, you will be happy. Money, 
power, and sex. Anybody in the world that is not looking at life through a Christian worldview will say, if you can get the right mixture of those three things, that is the recipe for happiness. But yet, the creator of the world gives us these instructions, and he says, look, I've designed this world to work in a very specific way. Here's how to get the most out of it. See, the Bible does not steal things from you. The Bible enhances your life when you follow its teachings. It seems like it steals things from you because we believe the lies of what the world has told us. I have a friend of mine that is a, um, an insurance adjuster. And from time to time, just like everybody talks about their work, he'll share his horror stories from being an insurance adjuster. You know, the, the person who buys a brand new Corvette and wrecks it before they get out of the parking lot, like, like those kind of stories. And about a year ago, he was telling me about an individual. He got called to come look at a truck that wanted the motor replaced in it. It was a brand new F-350. It was a Ford broke down a brand new F-350 King Ranch. Now, if you're not familiar with vehicles, that's somewhere between an eighty dollars to $100,000 vehicle. And it's a really expensive vehicle. And so he went to the mechanic shop to look at this truck to see if it was an insurance claim or not. And the mechanic said, I'm fixing to start working on it. If you want to come back here, you can kind of look at it. And as they walked back in the shop, the mechanic began to pull a few things off. And immediately he smelt the smell of gasoline. Now, some of you have no clue what that means. But, but let me tell you what had happened. This truck was a diesel truck. This man had it for a few weeks. And um, for whatever reason, one day his wife decided to drive it. She didn't understand there was a difference between a diesel motor and a gasoline motor. She pulled up this brand new $80,000 truck to a gas pump and filled this diesel truck with gasoline. Yeah, yeah. Now, you and I might argue that that's not a big deal. You might argue, well, why should that matter, Brian? Gasoline and diesel are basically the same thing <laughs> getting heckled here <laughs> they're, they're basically the same thing they're both they're both made from crude oil they both go through a refining process they're both made to make an engine work they're both used to mobilize vehicles down the world why would you not be able to put gasoline in a diesel motor but somebody who understands a vehicle will tell you if you put gas in a diesel engine, it will break it because it is not designed to run off that fuel. That particular truck, at only a few weeks old, had $13,000 in damage because of the difference of the kind of fuel that was put in it. So listen, here, here's what the Bible does. The Bible from the Creator, from the only one who actually understands life, tells you, you were designed to work in a very specific way. This is the instructions. Everything else you can pour into your life will eventually break you. That sin that the world says to chase will eventually bring you harm. The Bible tells you and teaches us what to avoid to be like that truck broken down because somebody poured the wrong thing into it. And, and here's what I find when we start talking about these kind of basic discussions about the Word of God and, and building your house on the right foundation or building your house on the wrong foundation. We, we start talking about, like, oh, Brian... Sunday morning, I'm in a pew just like everybody else. I'm probably doing okay. I've got this figured out. Like, I'm in church. I don't know why you're telling me this. Go tell this to somebody on the street. But I, I was astounded at this recent study that just came out. Listen to this. 68% of Americans self-identify as Christians. 68% of Americans identify as churchgoers, as people who understand and sit under the teachings of Jesus. But this same, the same research began to ask questions. And what they found is that although 68% of Americans self-identify as Christians, 
only 9% of these people live with an actual worldview. That 6% of self-identified questions live with a biblical worldview based on the scripture. And they found this out by asking them questions and seeing how they responded to biblical worldview questions. And these are not questions like a denomination might argue over. These are questions like, is it important for you to have faith in Jesus Christ? And many people would answer, well, it's important that you have faith in something. It doesn't really matter if it's in Islam or Christianity, just as long as you have faith. They would ask questions like, do you believe in teachings of other uh, religions, specifically karma, which is a Hindu teaching? The teaching of karma is that there is some force in the world that is constantly bringing balance. And so if you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. And many Christians responded that they believed that karma was a real spiritual, uh, spiritual thing, a spiritual force. And the last one is the one that bothers me, is that, that many Christians reported believing that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And, and they left out of the equation people accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. These things are not the teachings of Jesus. Yet you have people who claim to be disciples of Jesus believing them. And the reason for this, this is a symptom of exposure to Christianity, but no sound connection to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that, that is not consistent with being a disciple. That is not consistent with somebody who dedicates their life to following the teachings of Jesus Christ. Our next take-home truth is this, is to be a disciple, we must have a sound connection to the teachings of Jesus. And you and I are so blessed when it comes to this. There are 52 countries across the world where the teachings of Jesus Christ, the word of God is banned. You cannot access it. They will throw you in jail. Some places they may even execute you for owning a Bible. As it stands currently, we don't have that problem. You can buy a Bible at Walmart. You can buy a Bible off of Amazon. You can take out your phone right now, and in the next 30 seconds, you can have the Bible downloaded on your phone. I have an app on my phone that has multiple different Bible translations in it, as well as 15 to 20 commentaries where people are spending time talking about what the Scripture means. We have access to the Word of God. Access is not the problem. The problem is Christians, followers of Christ, self-proclaimed disciples, choosing to engage. Very simply put, we choose not to. And I don't want to sound legalistic, but to be honest, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's an expectation that you engage with the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's not a guilt trip, like you're at a church, you should read your Bible. Like that is the definition of a disciple, is you dedicate your life to living the teachings of Jesus Christ. You cannot dedicate your life to living the teachings of Jesus Christ if you do not engage them. So today I wanted to go over four things about how we engage the Word of God. So a disciple, take home truth, a disciple of Jesus engages God's words by, number one, seeking teaching. These are practical steps that disciples should be following if we're serious about following Christ. Seeking teaching means that on a regular basis, we're going to sit with someone, either in church or outside of church, who is more studied than us in the Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about just me here and saying like, oh, you should sit under me. Uh, listen, I listen to pastors who know so much more about, about the Bible weekly, multiple times a week, so that I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm engaging. But, but you need to be somewhere where somebody who understands the Bible through multiple lenses that you may not understand it yet 
can teach you. A great place for that is in our bridge crews or send your kids to our Sunday school. Listen to sermons. You don't just have to do that here on Sunday. You can find places online, great pastors, great teachers of the word teaching. But we must let somebody more knowledgeable than us lead us and train us because the way that God God designed the gospel is disciples train disciples. Number two, a disciple of Jesus engages God's words by, number two, exposure. See, teaching is necessary, but here's where I think we'll lose a lot of people. Sunday is not enough exposure to the Word of God. This needs to be a daily habit if we want to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like New Year's. Here it is. It is uh, January 15th. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you came into the new year thinking, I'm going to start a new workout routine, new diet. Anybody? Just me. Some of y'all lying. Okay, there we go. Okay, I see some. Like, like, like y'all are my people. Me too. I got a little thing on my phone. I'm, I'm working out every day trying to get in shape. Okay, let's be honest. How many of you on January 15th have already felt at that? Yeah. Y'all are my people. That's us, right? Like, like here's what I found out. Here's what I found out about working out in new health routines is that simply doing it one time is not enough. And you want to know how I know that? I checked. I got done working out. I ripped my shirt off and I ran in there in front of the mirror and I'm like, you know, I'm doing the, doing the flexing and stuff like that. And I'm like, hey, babe, Jess, my chest look bigger. Just did six push-ups. My shoulders look broader, don't they? I just did 12 arm raises. And my wife's sitting in the bed reading a book. Oh, you're so hot. See, one time is not enough. If you want results in, in your physical routine, you've got to have consistency. And it's the same thing with the Word of God. If you want results in your spiritual life and growing in the teachings of God, you need consistency, day-to-day consistency. That doesn't mean if you missed a day, you failed, quit. That means pick it up the next day, the next day, and continue to read, continue to grow in that. But what we have to be engaging the Word of God consistently if we want to change. And the Word of God will change you if you'll do that. Number three, a disciple must engage with the Word of God by seeking meaning. This is where it begins to get really hard for us. See, the Word of God is not meant to just be a book that we know a lot about. The Word of God is meant to affect my life today. If you read Scripture, it has a meaning for your life today something that you can apply. Go back to what it said in 2 Timothy 3.16. It gives us four things for which, the, uh, for which the Bible is good for. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Three out of the four of those are practical daily applications. Correction means that the Word of God challenges me and who I am. By, by the standard of the Word of God, I should look at the Word of God and say, I am failing in this way. This is something that I'm doing wrong or something that I'm not doing right that I should be. That's reproof. Correction is then that the Bible then turns around and says, this is the way that you should do this. Quit doing it the way that you're doing it. Start living this way. Lost my train of thought. Uh, the, the next one is... Um, Instruction in righteousness, which is how to grow more like Christ. And then fourth, doctrine is just a strength of understanding. So, so we must be exposing ourselves to the Bible and allowing it to change us. And I think for many of us, even if we are exposing ourselves to the Word of God, I think we're missing that part of applying it to our lives, of exposing ourselves to that need for change. 
And so one of the things I see a lot is devotional books. And I'm not talking bad about devotional books. I got a stack of them that tall at my house. There's nothing wrong with them. But devotional books a lot of times are like the junk food of Christianity. It's always upbeat. It's always uplifting. It's never challenging. And so we can grow past simply devotional books. Bible reading plans are great. If you're on a Bible reading plan, I'm so glad that you are there. But what that can turn into, if we're not crazy, is quick and get my chapter done for today so I can go do other things. And we miss this essential part of seeking the meaning for how does the Word of God change me and how is it my foundation? It's like this. How many of you have seen Star Wars? Anybody? Bunch of nerds. I've seen, I've seen a few Star Wars. Uh, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but I've seen... And when I watch Star Wars, I go, I watch the Star Wars movies, like, okay, that was good. I enjoyed that. I've seen the movie. But there are people out there, and if I'm talking about you, I'm sorry, they are students of Star Wars. I mean, I, I see some people looking at their spouses. Okay, we found them. We know who they are. Like, like, those people will study the Star Wars movies. And if you don't know Star Wars, like, they made three of them, and then they made three more, but they were actually before, not after. And then this is that person's grandparent, and then their nephew. And it's like crazy. And somebody who's a student of Star Wars can tell you how all of those things connect, what the plot line is, all of the names of all of the spaceships, all of those things. That is so much different than me who sits down and watches the movie and says, I enjoy it. And for many of us, when it comes to the scripture, we watch the movie, but we've not been a student of the scripture. And so we've got to be able to, to step into the word of God and engage it in a way where we say, I want this to change me. And Jesus was the master of taking the word of God and making it a daily application. In the scripture, and the scripture doesn't record everything about Jesus. John said if you recorded everything that Jesus did, the world would not contain the amount of books if they wrote down everything Jesus did. And we have four books about the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. We didn't get most of it. We got what God deemed as important. But in just those four books, Jesus references Old Testament scripture 78 times. And he references scripture from 27 different Old Testament books. And he would pull the scripture out in a time when it applied to the circumstance of the moment. See, when Jesus went out into the desert and he was tempted, Satan himself comes after Jesus, tries to get Jesus to sin. How did Jesus uh, fight back against Satan? He began to quote scripture at him. Jesus was the master of knowing scripture and applying it in the moment of meaning. And as disciples of Christ who seek to enter, uh, imitate him, it should be the same for us. Number four, last thing, a disciple engages the word of God by implying it. That means that when we read the scripture, when we read the word of God, we should read it with the plan that this is going to change me, not to see if I like what it says. This is going to change me. I'm going to modify my life to fit what the Bible says. See, you look at Jesus in the parable, he was talking about two men. They both had access to the word of God. They both heard it. Who's the man who builds his house on a, on a, a sound foundation? It is the man who takes it and applies it to himself. See, this is the ultimate goal is scripture should change us. And if you will sp spend time and study, the days will turn into the weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years, and scripture will make you a new person. If you struggle with a sin, the closer you get to God, and part of that is in, in, in his scripture, you will change. People don't believe this. Your desires will change. The things that you find enjoyable will change. The things that you want will change. And reading scripture is a part of that. And we will begin to reflect Christ and we begin to be a mature disciple. 
So what we want to do as we go through these practical steps is we want to give you some ways to empower you to do these things that are habits of a disciple. In your bulletin today, you don't have to get it out. In your bulletin today, there was a new sheet in there. Some of you have seen it before. We've used it in bridge groups and Wednesday nights. We call that a soap sheet. And we call it a soap sheet because what we believe is when you get in the Word of God, you scrub down real good and it makes you cleaner. That's a a reference straight from Jesus. And the soap sheet is just a tool to help you understand what the scripture is laying out for you and how it applies to your life. It is not the only tool. You don't have to use this. It's not homework, but it is a tool. If you do not have a tool to help you understand scripture, I would suggest you use this. I use it in my personal Bible study. All you have to do with a soap sheet is pick 10 to 15 verses of scripture. Read those and then ask you some questions. What stood out to you today? If you're studying with the heart, if you're letting the Holy Spirit guide you, something will stand out to you when you study. You just write down, verse 3 stood out to me. And then it'll say, what does this mean? And you just write down everything you know about the Scripture, what it means, what God wants, what it doesn't want. And then it asks you, it makes you think, how do you apply this to your own life? And so then you have to look at your heart and say, this changes me in this way. I want to share with you, this is from my studies this week, my soap studies that have convicted me to change. In one week, the Word of God has convicted me that I need to make sure that I'm glorifying God when I'm doing good, not building my own kingdom. The Scripture has has convinced me that murder and adultery are sins of the heart, not actions that I must still be careful of because my heart is prone to those things. It has convinced me that my actions are what reflect Jesus to the world, and I need to be focused on how I come off to other people because they're looking at me to see my Savior. It has convinced me that I need to serve God with gladness and not seek rewards in this world, but be happy that God is doing something in our life. It has convinced me that God is in control of my finances, my church, and my work situation. He has all these things in control, and he will work it out as he wants to, and it has convinced me that I have pride within my heart. That's one week of engaging the Word of God. And and we we should be going to the Word of God and saying, God, what can I change? And I want to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not very good at this. This is, this is something I'm growing in this week, or I'm sorry, this year as well with you. But here's my challenge for you this week. My challenge for you is to set a time aside when you're going to study the Word of God. You can use whatever tool you want to, but set aside, a time aside daily when you will study the Word of God. There's a place for you on the bottom of your take-home truth sheet that you're more than welcome to fill that out. I'll tell you, my time, the time works for me is when I get to work. I'm there early. Nobody's there. Nobody's bothering me. That's when I do it. Uh, maybe, maybe you find a time before you go to bed or when you first wake up or when you get to work or during your break or during your lunch. It doesn't matter. Just a time when I will engage the Word of God to be a disciple and let the Scriptures change you. See, what we find is, <laughs> what we find is that the instructions of the Bible truly give us the best life. The Jesus' teachings truly give us the best life. And Jesus had one teaching that he focused on more than any other teaching. Liv, if you want to come up here. And that teaching was what we call the gospel, the good news. Jesus spent his life walking around and teaching. He would even walk into a place and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time. And the teaching of Jesus Christ is this, is that you and I are all sinners. We're not here because we're good enough for God. We're here because God loved us enough to make us good enough for him. And Jesus came here and died for that message and for that possibility of us coming here. I want to ask you one question today. Jesus put it this way. The foundation that you build your life upon will determine if you are foolish or wise. So I want to ask you today, if you're building your eternal hope 
upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and what he did for you or if you're building it upon something else like being good enough or being nice enough or just hoping that it doesn't matter. And here's the reason that it matters. Because Jesus said that those foundations will stand until the storm comes. And for every person in this room, the storm of death is coming. And that's when it's going to matter what you spent your life building your foundation on. Now, you may be lucky. I think we've all known the storms are coming tonight and they're going to be here at 4 o'clock. That may be the way your life ends. You may have time to get it right with God. You may get the diagnosis that says you have six months. But most of us in here have been in a storm that hits us out of nowhere and catches us by surprise. And that's possible for you, is that the storm of death may come and catch you by surprise. And in that moment, you're going to want your foundation built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, not on the sand of what this world tells you. So I'd invite everybody in here today to walk out of here being wise men and women, having our foundation set solidly on Jesus Christ. If that's not you, it can change right now. I would love to share with you what it means to put your faith in Christ and how to do that. It will change your life for the better, I promise. Don't walk out of here again today the same as you walked in here. Let's stand and worship.